Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the English longbow. One of the most important and effective weapons in, in throughout all of history, really. And it played a huge role in shaping English and, uh, and more broadly, Western European history as well here. So for about 200 years, the longbow was, uh, was more or less uncontested as, as the pinnacle of military technology. That might be a little bit of an overstatement, but it really, really was very, very important weapon. Um, and it's a funny thing to think about these days, because obviously, you know, today we've got nukes and stealth bombers and, and hypersonic missiles. But, you know, never mind bloody hypersonic missiles, mate. Back in the, back in the high Middle Ages, you shot arrows at 200 kilometers an hour and you were bloody grateful for that. Uh, the longbow, it was the driving force behind many of England's major military successes between the 13th and the 15th centuries. Um, although as the 15th century continued, uh, you know, the, the unstoppable march of technological development began to render it obsolete with the rise of gunpowder weapons and such. We'll talk about all that. But uh, nonetheless, throughout the time that the longbow reigned supreme on the battlefield, it was, it was responsible for some, some truly dramatic English battlefield victories particularly against the French, of course, during the Hundred Years' War. You might have heard of the Battle of Crecy and the Battle of Agincourt, um, both of which were decided by the Longbow. And there are plenty of other examples of England dominating medieval warfare with, the, you know, with their expertise with this weapon. But today's episode is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little different to many others, because rather than focus on a, on a specific event or a specific person, we're actually going to take a wider view of a historical piece of technology. We're going to talk about what a longbow was, how it developed over the years, where it was put to use, who benefited from taking advantage of it, and of course, why it proved to be such a historically important weapon. We'll also try to put the longbow in its place in, you know, in the technology tree of history, how it obsoleted existing military strategies, and then in turn was obviously obsoleted itself. And of course, don't even worry about this, we'll also have a chat about the major battles that involved longbows, Crissy, Agincourt, plenty of others. So there'll be some blood and guts, don't worry about that, there'll be some good stuff as well, as all uh, as all the boring... <laughs> bore- I don't know why you listen to this podcast if you don't like boring historical nonsense, that's literally all this podcast is. Anyway, let's get to it. We've got a lot to get across here. So let's kick things off with a story of the English longbow. We're going all the way back to, uh, honestly, look, don't know. Don't have an exact date as to when the longbow first emerged as a premier, uh, you know, Middle Ages weapon. There was a strong tradition of archery in England already that dated back to the Norman Conquest. Uh, you can actually go back to episode 76 of this podcast, which covers William the Conqueror and his conquest of England in 1066. Uh, you can hear about how archery played you know, a key role in events like the Battle of Hastings. But of course, back in the 11th century, they weren't using longbows. Their bows were about 1.2 to 1.5 metres tall, not quite the towering 1.8 metres plus of the longbow. Uh, historians love to argue about actually what constitutes a longbow and how, how long it actually has to be before it is a, a longbow. Uh, and some will give you the old, well, actually, treatment if you know start calling smaller bows short. Short bows, because they'll say that a short bow only refers to a composite bow, which is made of wood and horn. Uh, and if you talk about a bow that's made of one piece of wood, like a longbow, uh, you st- should instead call it a self-bow. Anyway, whatever you want to call the bloody things, the Norman in e- Normans in England, they established a, a culture of bowmanship and archery that ultimately led to the development of the longbow by the mid-13th century is probably the safest place for it to put it. And I should stop here and actually give credit where credit is due to the real originators of the longbow, which were not the English. 
English, but rather the Welsh. The Welsh used longbows with devastating effectiveness while fighting off Anglo-Norman invasions, although Wales obviously finally succumbed to the English in, uh, in 1283 under Edward I. Uh, still, the mastery of the longbow uh, that the Welsh demonstrated was not ignored by the English, who were obviously torn apart by this weapon, and they readily adopted the weapon themselves to the point that it's known today as the English longbow rather than the Welsh longbow. And you now I know you're probably sitting there and thinking, well, my, my, that's very out of character for the English, isn't it? Nicking something that isn't theirs and exploiting it for their own gain. How, how highly unusual indeed for the English. Highly unusual indeed. Uh, but in, in any case, some of the finest wheels of the longbow were in fact Welsh right throughout its time at the top, and Welsh archers fought with English troops at all of the, the battles we'll, we'll discuss in due course here. Um, although it's worth mentioning that the Welsh initially used the longbow slightly differently to how the English ended up doing so. The Welsh would actually set up ambushes and fire longbows uh, at point-blank range right through even the most heavily armoured troops. Uh, but I'm, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here. Uh, before we get to the armour-busting capabilities of the longbow, let's take a step back. Let's talk about what a longbow is and how they were made and then move on to their applications in warfare. So, as I said, a longbow usually measured about 1.8 metres in length, as tall or usually taller than the person wielding it in most cases, and it was made from a single piece of wood, ideally taken from a yew tree, that's Y-E-W tree. Uh, sometimes they'd be take they'd be made also from ash or elm, but yew was the ideal material to make a longbow due to its composition, due to its properties. It's relatively hard while also quite elastic at the same time. It's durable and springy, which is ideal, of course, for use in something like a bow. Additionally, the properties of both the sapwood and the heartwood of yew make it perfect for bow making. Sapwood, which is the wood on the outside of the tree, of course, where the sap comes out, uh, it resists tension, while the heartwood of the yew tree, the inner wood, it resists compression, which makes you the the, the perfect kind of wood to be turned uh, into bows, of course. The the ideal bow stave, uh, the, 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 the big stick that you'd work into a bow, bow stave, uh, would be a long strip of yew, half, half sapwood and half heartwood, the division running along the length of the stave. Um, and you'd have the hardwood on the inside of the bow facing the archer while shooting and the sapwood on the outside facing the target. And as an archer would draw back the bow, the hardwood becomes compressed while the sapwood, of course, bears the tension of the string being pulled back. And so therefore, you've got that perfect marriage of, uh, you know, of the technical properties of the wood and the mechanical properties of the bow. They're, uh, you know, they're working in harmony to, uh, to make the bow the best thing that, it, you know, the, the, phys- physically speaking, the best that it can be. Um, the fact that these bows were made from one piece of wood also, uh, it meant that unlike a composite bow, they didn't need to be laminated in the same way to, uh, to, to protect and hold together various materials, uh, although they were still usually coated in, a, in, in wax or resin and tallow to be, uh, to be water resistant. Um, and it meant the fact that it wasn't, didn't have to be laminated like a composite bow meant that it was relatively durable to the enormous pressures that were put on it while firing. Although I say relatively because they still wore out and broke you know, to the point that not a single longbow has actually survived from the Middle Ages through today. We have a couple from later on in history, from the Renaissance period, uh, especially after a, a ship called the Mary Rose was dredged up from the bottom of the sea, uh, fi- filled with longbows it was. So there's all sorts of examples from the 16th century, but but none actually from this period that we're discussing. None of them actually made the... This because they were replaced, unlike, you know, something like a sword or a family heirloom. These bows would break, they were replaced. They weren't, uh, they weren't sort of held in the same... Uh, well, you know, they're also 
put under an enormous amount of uh, enormous amount of pressure on a, on a daily basis when they're used. So they, they weren't necessarily going to last a, a huge amount of time. It, it was often better to just get a new bow rather than try to repair one that was uh, that was you know out of whack. Anyway. Making a longbow, by the way, very lengthy process, very lengthy process indeed. First, the wood had to be dried for a year or two and slowly worked into shape over the next one or two years after that. So a single bloody bow could take up to four years to make. But I tell you what, there was plenty of demand for them. I can tell you that even despite how long it took to make them, there was plenty and there was there was more demand than the, than bowyers could keep up with because demand for longbow bows, it was so great, in fact, it, was, it wasn't even the bowyers that couldn't keep up with demand, it was the bloody woodsmen. By the end of the 13th century, century, England was starting to run out of yew trees. The English began to import yew bow staves in 1294, and at various points in the coming years, the royal bowyers were actually actually given permission from the king to cut bow staves from yew trees on private property. So you might wake up one morning, you've got a yew tree in your front yard, and the bowyers bloody there hacking away at it with an axe, trying to get his bow. He says, oh, sorry, mate, the king sent me, got to make more bows. You're like, what's my bloody tree? What are you doing? But that's what happened. That, that was so desperate was, uh, was England for uh, new sources of yew. But even this wasn't enough. At one point, right, a very, very odd tax was imposed on all sea merchants that arrived in English ports. If you wanted to do business in an English harbour, you first had to pay a tax of four U bow staves for every ton, that's T-U-N, an old measurement of volume that was about 0.9 cubic metres, for every ton of cargo that you brought in, you had to pay four U bow staves. Not money, not actual human earth gold. Imagine this. You get a big load of, I don't know, bloody, what did people sell back then? Like wool? No, no, England exported wool, didn't they? They didn't buy it. So, um, uh, all right, I don't know, some trader from bloody Hamburg, right? He turns up with a ship full of Osterwasser and, and fish sandwiches. And before they even let him into port to do business, he has to hand over a bunch of U bow staves as a tax. And this tax was later increased to 10 bow staves per tonne. And, and it goes a long way to show just how desperate desperate England was uh, to, to make more longbows, how much they relied on the longbow to support their military power at this point in history, that they were, you know, just scrabbling to find any bits of you <laughs> they could from anywhere at all. Anyway, I mentioned before that it could take up to four years to make a longbow. It took a lot bloody longer than that, however, to make someone who could actually use the damn thing. Because training an archer to use a longbow, it took years and years and years. Usually a decade was what was considered the minimum for someone to you know, actually finally be proficient. Uh, with a longbow. It was an incredibly difficult weapon to use effectively and accurately. Uh, you might have heard of some of the old laws that used to be in place in England during these times. Archery practice was mandatory. It was compulsory for everyone who could who could shoot a bow to, to learn how to do so. In towns and villages around the country, every Sunday after church services, people would have to go out into the green, set up targets and practice shooting with bows. Um, because at this time, there wasn't really such a thing as a standing army of professional uh, soldiers. Uh, you know, this the the, the long the, the the decline of the longbow sort of coincided with the uh, with the rise of, of this idea of a professional standing army. But at this time, you know, in the early in, in you know the early points of the uh, of the bow, the longbow's career, uh, it was a very expensive and, and quite a disruptive thing to have a, a professional standing army. Most rulers, you know, in order to maintain an army and to pay them had to 
will basically take farmers out of the fields because most, you know, war was a seasonal activity at this point in history. And most so-called soldiers would have to go back and tend their farms and businesses throughout the year. But of course, as, as longbow training took years and years and years, uh, a compulsory archery practice actually meant that England had hundreds and thousands of people experienced with the longbow, ready to be called up and engage, of course, you know, engaged in this in the national English pastime of fighting the French. Forcing your entire population to become trained archers is obviously a very good idea when you can't afford to have a standing army, but it also runs a real risk of backfiring on you, as King Richard the uh, the Second learned in 1381 during the Peasants' Revolt. The Peasants' Revolt uh, arose because of you know things such as high taxation and the aftermath of the uh, of the Black Plague, um, but it meant that when peasants took up arms in open rebellion. It wasn't so much, you know, torches and pitchforks as it was longbows and hundreds and hundreds of hours of training with them. Oops. Anyway, for better or worse, England ensured that, you know, the bulk of its population were at least proficient with the longbow, uh, which had some interesting consequences beyond just the military ones, uh, because it actually had an effect on the, on the, on the, the, the physicality, on the actual, you know, the bodies of the people who, who were trained in this way. Studying the skeletons of longbow archers from this period reveals that they had larger left arms with weird bone growths on all of the joints, on the, on the wrist and the elbow and the shoulders, that sort of thing like that. Um, this isn't too surprising, however, as the draw weight of a longbow was ridiculously high, as, as high as maybe 700 or 800 newtons, which is like pulling back a weight of 70 or 80 kilograms. Imagine doing that over and over again as you learn to shoot. You know, every Sunday you're there learning to shoot a bow. I, mean, I, say, I, I, should, re, I should sort of rephrase this because I say pulling. Um, you didn't actually pull back a longbow. According to contemporary accounts, uh, you wouldn't pull back on the string. Rather, you actually held your right hand steady, right, and pushed with your left. You leaned into the bow itself, right? This would then bring the knock of the arrow back to your ear, and then you'd swing the bow up, you'd aim and release it from there. And the massive amount of force being put into the bow as part of this, you know, as part of the, the, the way that it was fired meant that a trained archer could shoot an arrow accurately, of course, over 200, well over 200 metres. The, the, the surviving record uh, from the 16th century is 315 metres, which is just incredible. Think of that. That is, what, three football fields? Absolutely incredible. Just, just a, an obscenely long distance to, to, to be shooting accurately as well. And, and, and this is what the training was all about. It was about mastering and controlling such a huge amount of force and, and shooting quickly and accurately. And that's why the years and years of training had to go into, you know, getting people uh, to, to a level of expertise with these weapons because they were very, very difficult to master indeed. And the reality, the biggest problem, the, real, the, the reality of the longbow was that the biggest problem that, that, that uh, trained archers faced, even after years and years of training, you know, it wasn't accuracy, it wasn't speed, it wasn't anything else like that. It was actually fatigue. Even the best archers at the time, they wouldn't be able to sustain accurate 200-meter shots for very long because, again, they're pulling, oh, sorry, pushing forward. They're, they're dealing with, you know, 700, 800 newtons of force, which, again, is like lifting up a 70 or 80 kilogram weight over and over again. A battlefield archer would usually be equipped with about 60 or 70 arrows. 
uh, but they would pace themselves while firing to make sure that they could actually keep up a sustainable rate of fire. They'd shoot only once every 10 seconds or so. And this was to avoid uh, fatigue and injury as, of course, shooting a longbow, it, it took its toll not only on your muscles, on your, you know, your back, your shoulders, your arms, that sort of stuff, but also your fingers. The joints of your fingers would be bloody rooted after, you know, pulling back a bow. Pu- I keep saying pulling back, holding onto a bow while you're pushing into it there like that. Um and also this delayed rate of fire was also, you know, because they had to make their shots count. They only had a limited supply of arrows. You know, even if, if they're shooting one arrow every 10 seconds, uh, you know, 60 or 70 arrows is only going to last you, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So, that you know, you don't have, you don't have a, a huge number, uh, a huge amount of uh, shots at your disposal. Well, having, having said that, in some battles they would have their ammunition replenished. Some armies had small boys who would run onto the battlefield and collect arrows that had already been shot and then bring them back to the archers so they could be shot again. Some archers used quivers that they would have at their um, on, on their belt typically not not you know obviously when you think of an archer you think of them drawing the arrow from over their shoulder that typically wasn't the case when they they would have them uh, sort of hanging from a quiver on on their sides they're like that but actually that that actually even itself wasn't the normal way you would do it because generally you would actually uh put all the arrows in the ground in front of you uh like sort of stick them in like uh you know like like tent pegs i guess and then you'd pull them out quickly as you as you were wanting to fire saves you sort of fiddly farting around with a with a quiver anyway we made a great big fuss of how hard it is to wield a longbow. Years of practice and training went into making a proficient archer. So why was it worth all the hassle? It's time to talk about the actual military application of the longbow and to understand just why it was such a dominant piece of military technology. So I wanna, I'm going to ask you to do something here. I want, you, I want you to imagine in your head, I want you to picture a medieval knight. And what, so sort of, sort of think about in your head, you know, immediately the, the image that springs to mind when you think about a medieval knight. I'm, I'm imagining that uh, they've got a sword, they've got a shield, maybe they've got a horse, but what they definitely have, I imagine that you're, you're thinking the same thing here, what they definitely have is a great big hulking suit of armour. Big plate armor, metal armor, all over them, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, that is, that is the classical image of a knight, and because that is what you know, a knight was defined by heavily, heavily armored uh, soldiers, either on horseback or on foot. And this is why the longbow was so effective. As ridiculous as it may sound, the arrow from a longbow could shred through plate armor. We've talked about how much, you know, the the, the enormous amounts of force that was behind all these arrows, and this is why it was so important. Even heavy iron armor was no defense against a longbow. Prior to the longbow, the mounted knight, the heavy cavalry, it was an unstoppable force on the medieval battlefield. But when you have someone who can fire an arrow designed to pierce armor at 200 kilometers an hour across 200 meters with pinpoint accuracy, all of a sudden, being a bloke dressed in a tin can strapped to a horse doesn't sound quite as appealing. And that's just the start of it, because never mind hitting the bloke in the armour, just shoot the bloody horse out from under him. Shooting a horse out from under a knight would usually result in the horse either rearing up and throwing the knight off, or just collapsing on top of the knight and, and injuring them very, very badly, of course. with the way, And then, you know, you've got to, even if the horse doesn't die, it's it, it's trampling across the battlefield in, in disarray while you're standing, you know, 100 metres away, safe behind, your, you know, your defences with your bow there. So no worries at all. It was a very effective weapon against this heavy cavalry. And on top of this, of course, even if these uh, these knights weren't uh, mounted, slow lumbering companies of knights or men-at-arms outfitted in heavy armour, they could no longer march forward and attack with impunity as hails of longbow arrows would lay waste to them as they slowly approached you know, an oncoming army. In short, 
Longbows were absolutely devastating against heavily armoured opponents and were an incredibly important way to counter mounted knights. And as French armies were generally led by hordes of heavily armoured knights, the matchup was of course a very favourable one for the English. One contemporary historian, a bloke named Gerald of Wales, right? So he was around at the time that this was all going on. This was a bloke who, uh, you know, heard firsthand accounts of the devastation the longbow caused caused on the battlefield. This is what he had to write about the longbow. He said this. In the war against the Welsh, one of the men of arms was struck by an arrow shot at him by a Welshman. It went right through his thigh, high up, where it was protected inside and outside the leg by his iron chaucers and then through the skirt of his leather tunic. Next, it penetrated the part of the saddle, which is called the alva or seat, and finally it lodged in his horse, driving so deep that it killed the animal. This is the amount of force that was behind a longbow arrow. It shot through two layers of armour, someone's thigh, a saddle, into a horse hard enough to kill it. This is how serious the longbow was when it came to the amount of damage it could put out. This was how devastating this weapon was on the medieval battlefield. It just ripped through people wearing heavy armour like it was nothing. But of course, armour developed in response to this. It, you know, it was developed to be more resistant to longbow fire, but so too did archers adapt to continue to stay effective. While fighting heavily armoured opponents, archers used something called a bodkin arrowhead. Imagine a small, sharp spike on the end of the arrow shaft, no barb or anything else like that, and this would punch through iron armour, no worries, and it could even penetrate steel when fired from close enough range. Only the very best quality steel armour could protect someone from a longbow, not something that obviously every soldier could afford. And so people who, you know, were dressed in wrought iron armour or, or basic steel plates, they had no, there weren't, wasn't really any kind of protection or defence against a longbow, especially at short range. Mate, they'd get skewered. They'd be skewered like a bloody roast pig. That'd, that'd be the end of them if they got, you know, they get too close to a longbow archer. That's it. But interestingly, interestingly, cloth armour ended up being more effective against longbow archers and their bodkin arrows It was as it was actually more resistant to being punched through. And this is quite an astonishing thing to think about, that, you know, the fact that if you, you, know, you, you wore a, a cloth gambeson or something else like that, that you would actually have a better time against a longbow. Um, however, of course, archers had a response to that as well. For opponents who were armoured in thick cloth, they instead used a, a broadhead arrow, which was an arrow with sort of a flattened, sharpened edge, like a pointed razor. And these broadhead arrows also had barbs on them, so they'd cause, cause great injury coming out as well as going in. Um, but they were able to cut through cloth, again, like, like a blade, basically, you know, firing through it there like that, and uh, had much, uh, much, were much more uh, efficient and, and effective against cloth-armoured opponents. But again, t- traditionally, typically, you're fighting against heavy-armoured uh, opponents, you use a bodkin arrow, even if the, the broadhead arrows with the barbs actually do a lot more damage once they finally get in there. They're not going to be able to pierce the, um, uh, pierce the, the, the heavy armour as well as bodkin arrows. Speaking of, actually, speaking of which, speaking of the, uh, the injuries... That, uh, that these arrows would cause here. Uh, the most common way to treat an arrow was, believe it or not, I mean, you probably will believe this because it, you know, it does make a lot of sense, but it's pretty bloody brutal. The best way to treat an arrow wound was actually to force the arrow out 
through the other side of the victim's body rather than pulling it back out the way that it had come. And this is because barbed arrows, they'd tear you to shreds if they were pulled back out. And of course, it was impossible to tell what type of arrow it was, whether it was barbed or not, while it was inside the victim. So what you'd do, you'd tie a piece of wet cloth to the fletching of the arrow so as to clean the wound up a bit as the arrow was forced through, and then push on the arrow until it could be pulled out from the other side. And I mean, you know, of course, with with the, the huge amount of force that was being put on these arrows, some of them were just skewer you straight away so it was just a matter of sort of pulling it out through the other side but but you often wouldn't pull it back the other way because then it would do more damage uh you know coming out the the way that it came in you'd actually push it all the way through it was i mean pretty pretty bloody brutal thing to to have to do especially if it didn't sort of go all the way through you on the way in so uh yeah i i, I don't like thinking about that too much it's very very uh, you know I, I promise you blood and guts and that's what you're getting anyway The long and the short of it was that the longbow was able to punish the prevailing military strategy of the time. Belting people about with heavily armoured soldiers and knights was what, you know, a lot of these these medieval armies were doing. And And for this reason, the English invested heavily financially, socially and militarily in this technology that, of course, they'd happily nicked off the Welsh and they used it to great effect in various conflicts against heavily armoured opponents. So let's talk about some of these conflicts and how the longbow was decisive in them before getting on to, uh, of course, how the longbow slowly but surely fell out of favour. Of course, the longbow is most famously associated with the Hundred Years' War between England and France, uh, but it played a key role in earlier wars uh, as well. We all know how much the English love fighting the French almost as much as they love fighting the Scottish. And it was during the uh, First and Second uh, Wars of Scottish Independence that the English exploited their, uh, their technological advantage in, uh, while fighting the Scots, winning some decisive battles again thanks to the longbow. In 1298, the famous Battle of Falkirk saw King Edward I of England bring over 10,000 Welsh longbowmen uh, to, uh, to, to fight the Scots, who were, of course, led uh, in this battle by the famous William Wallace. Uh, the Scots had arranged thousands of spearmen into tight-knit formations uh, who successfully held off the English cavalry, but of course they were sitting ducks for the English archers. The spearmen broke under a hail of longbow fire. The archers were firing as fast as they could this time around. Accuracy wasn't important against you know great big groups of soldiers there. And once the spearmen broke, the cavalry ran them down and destroyed them. Then in 1333, at the Battle of Halladon Hill, uh, we again saw the English longbowmen deployed, uh, this time by King Edward III of England, as he threatened to capture the town of Berwick. And uh, Edward and his archers, they took up positions on top of Halladon Hill, uh, giving them a commanding view of the surrounding areas and leaving the Scottish Sir Archibald Douglas without any room to manoeuvre his 13,000 troops. However, of course, if he did nothing, then Berwick would fall to the English, so he had no choice but to try to take the fight to the English despite their favourable position on top of the hill. And as Douglas advanced towards the hill to face the English, Edward drew up his archers in a wedge formation on, on either side. So not, sorry, the archers themselves weren't the wedge. They were kind of making a wedge uh, in between them, two flanks on either sides of the Scottish approach there. And uh, the Scottish force, forces wedged between them, did their best to push through the marshy ground. But of course, they were torn apart by the longbowmen on either side of them. Thousands and thousands of Scots died to English arrows, while the English casualties numbered a total of 14. So it was, I mean, look, the longbow, as, as weird as this might sound, the, the longbow was the medieval equivalent of a machine gun. There was just no real way for most soldiers to defend themselves from it. A trained archer could fire quickly 
and accurately and bring down great numbers of enemy soldiers while not being in any, in any real danger themselves. Their bows outward had a, a greater range than most other, you know, uh, most other, any, any kind of other crossbows, short bows, composite bows, whatever. And, uh, and the, the years and years of training that went into a, a talented uh, longbow archer meant that there was just no, there was no one who could, could possibly hold a candle to them. It was, it, it, was all, it was just absolutely devastating to see these people at work. But of course, the battles that resulted in the longbow becoming as famous as it is today took place not on the British Isles, but rather in France during the Hundred Years' War. So, quick recap of the Hundred Years' War began in 1337 when Edward III, the English king who had fought in Halidon Hill, he lay claim to the French throne as well. Now, obviously, the, obviously the French, you know, they weren't so keen on an English king. I mean, you know, who would be? Ugh. And as a result, they uh, they ignore uh, Edward's claim to the throne and install instead a French bloke, Philip VI. One thing led to another, and eventually Edward III goes, bugger this, we're going to war, let's let's teach these uh, Frenchies a thing or two about the good old English longbow, shall we? And of course, this this war raged for, well, yeah, a very long time, which you, you know, probably already guessed, seeing as it's called the, the Hundred Years' War and not, you know, like the 38-minute the war, which is actually a real thing, by the way, fought between Britain and Zanzibar in 1896. Britain won, rule Britannia, we're all so impressed. Um, anyway, the Hundred Years' War, it lasted, of course, for 116 years. Nice one, historians. Got to make it as hard as possible, don't you? Couldn't call it the 116-year war, could you? No, just ra- rounding it off carelessly and clumsily. Again, I, w- w- thank you so much. Anyway, the conflict ebbed and flowed between 1337 and, uh, and 1453, with the English gaining the upper hand in the early to mid-stages of the war before losing the whole thing spectacularly at the end. And you'll notice that that coincides with the date that the longbow started to fall out of fashion. And this is not a coincidence. Old mate Joan of Arc also had a fair bit to do with it, I'll be honest, but that is a story for another time. At the beginning of the war, Edward III, he led his troops personally with an invasion of France, along with his son, Edward the Black Prince, which has got to be one of the coolest names in history. And the two Edwards, they are looting and pillaging their way around the French countryside with about 14,000 troops, many of whom, of course, are these highly trained, highly proficient longbowmen. Now, the French king, Philip VI, he mustered troops of his own, between uh, 20,000 and 30,000 of them, and met the English in battle on the 12th of July in 1346. And despite overwhelming numerical superiority, the French army it was mercilessly ripped to pieces by, of course, you guessed it, English longbowmen. The English once again set themselves up on the side of a hill with archers again in a wedge formation on either flank of the incline. And there they were defended by pits and trenches that they'd dug and were well fed and well rested by the time the French arrived to fight. The French, on the other hand, had been travelling in poor conditions. They hadn't rested before the battle and they were overeager to fight and poorly disciplined. The French had 8,000 mounted knights as well as a large contingent of crossbowmen, most of whom were from Genoa, which is obviously in, in, in present day Italy. A crossbowman could fire once about every 30 seconds and didn't have the range of a longbow, whereas, of course, a longbowman could sustainably fire once every 10 seconds, and it doesn't take too much to work out who has the better of that situation. As the battle began, the French unrolled their famous banner, the Oriflamme, a long red flag that meant that the French intended to take no prisoners. Now, this was done, of course, to instill fear into the hearts of their foes, especially the nobles who led them, as usually the nobles would be captured uh, and ransomed off for cash. 
But uh, when the French flew the Oriflamme, however, it, it meant that they would give no quarter. And it was designed, of course, to have, you know, the, the opposition quaking in their boots. Anyway, the battle began with an archery duel and things went from bad to worse for these poor old Genoese crossbowmen. The baggage train had been held up, which means that they didn't have any spare ammunition. But much more importantly, they didn't have their, I don't know how to say this properly, pavises, I think it's called, a, a pavis, a pavises, I don't know. But what they were was great big wooden shields that were set up on the ground for the crossbowmen to shelter behind while reloading. There would be three crossbowmen behind each of these shields, the massive big great bulwarks they wore, they were, and they would safely reload uh, from behind it and then, you know, duck out, shoot, duck back behind it there like that. And of course, you know, they didn't have anything to shelter them while reloading. They're well within range of the longbows uh, that are firing on them uh, mercilessly here. And as the longbows are firing three times as fast as the crossbows, it was a total, total slaughter. It's thought that the Genoese got about two rounds off before breaking and routing completely straight back into the French knights, who then began to attack them for desertion and cowardice. So they're being cut down, these poor old Genoese, you know, these crossbowmen. They've turned to flee the battle so they're not getting murdered by the English. Instead, they just get murdered by the French. Terrible. Anyway, it's now it's now the knights' turn to attack. I talked, I talked before about the supremacy of heavy cavalry at the time, and the French knights, they were itching to take the fight to the English. They were feeling, they were feeling absolutely assured of victory here. But it turns out, however, that charging up a muddy hill on horseback with longbowmen on both sides of you is not a good idea, no matter how much armour you're wearing. The longbowmen waited until the knights were within 100 metres or so of them to ensure their bodkin arrows would penetrate the thick plate armour of the French knights, and then they let fly, and it was an absolute massacre. If they didn't shoot the knights themselves, they shot their horses, and before long, the heavy armour that the French were wearing became a liability rather than a benefit, because... They were unable to to move or manoeuvre down in the mud. Many French knights, they were trampled to death, and those that survived were quickly killed by the advancing English foot soldiers who moved in once the cavalry charge had failed, thanks to the longbowmen doing their uh, their grim work there. Now, the French, they attempted a second charge up the hill, and a, and a third, and then more and more and more after that, that as the battle continued. It's unknown exactly how many times they attempted to take the hill, but they were pushed back effortlessly at every turn. The archers were untouchable. They were firing from behind those pits, you'll remember, and the crossfire from either side of the wedge meant that no knight was able to make any real progress towards the English position. Even the bearer of the Oriflamme was shot, not fatally, but badly enough for him to abandon this sacred French banner, uh, which was then captured by the English, utterly humiliating for the French. And that is, of course, on top of the thousands and thousands of troops that the French lost, lost, many of whom were nobles and knights. And the English on the other side, after having, you know, (laughs) inflicted this enormous butchery on the French, their casualties were... A few hundred. This is kind of like, I mean, to, to put this in terms that, you know, might make a little more sense for, you know, in modern times. This is kind of like a modern military getting into a bunch of tanks and going out to, you know, fight an enemy that they are almost, you know, they're, they're almost assured. They're in tanks. Like, what, what can people, you know, fight? What are they going to do? They start chucking rocks at them or even shooting them with guns. They're still going to beat them. They're in bloody tanks, mate. Of course you're going to win, right? And then all of a sudden, 
The enemy pulls out bloody laser guns and starts obliterating you with them. This is this is the the difference in technology, you know, in technology between heavily armored knights and uh, and longbows. Here it was uh, it, it was an absolute slaughter, and the Battle of Cressy was one of the most important and decisive battles of the Middle Ages, and not not because you know not because it went on to enormously strengthen the English position in the Hundred Years' War. It was because it represented a huge upheaval in the world of military strategy. It marked the beginning of the obsolescence of armoured knights as a heavy cavalry unit, all thanks to the humble longbow. And many years later, on the 25th of October, 1415, perhaps the most famous battle of the Hundred Years' War took place, the Battle of Agincourt, which I'm sure you've heard of before. It was made famous by Shakespeare's play Henry V. And once again, it was an overwhelming triumph for England and English longbows. Henry V had renewed his great-grandfather Edward III's claim on the French French throne, and like Edward, Henry had also marched into France uh, to, you know, to to press his claim. And uh, also, like Edward, Henry was outnumbered by the French. He had about 6,000, between 6,000 and 9,000 troops, uh, most of whom were longbowmen, compared to the French army of 14 to 15,000. So, you know, significantly outnumbered here. And the armies finally met on a recently ploughed field between uh, two forests, and Henry deployed his troops once again with his archers on the flanks and three infantry detachments in the centre. Now, this time, however, the archers protected themselves not with pits, but actually with stakes that were driven into the ground, pointing towards the French to protect them from a cavalry charge. Now, this may sound rather obvious to us these days, but this was a relatively new piece of technology that Henry had happily adopted. It had been used uh, uh, fighting, it had been fought in a, used in the, in the Battle of Nicopolis uh, about 20 years previously, fighting out against the Ottomans way out east. Uh, but it was obviously enormously helpful for the English, uh, for the English effort and, and was pretty instrumental in, in the English victory by keeping the archers safe from the French cavalry. To begin with, however, things didn't look good for the English. The French had the better of the terrain. It was actually up to the English to make the first move. They were in a very bad spot, uh, uh, tactically speaking. But Henry, rather than order an attack with his men-at-arms that would have involved marching his men you know, through the mud of this, this freshly ploughed field, instead, he ordered his archers to advance up the flanks and bring them in range of the French. So the archers, they pulled up their stakes, they advanced to within range, and then they redeployed their stakes in the ground to protect their new position. And had the French cavalry attacked while the archers were undefended like this, the battle may have gone a very different way, but they did not take advantage of this opportunity. And as a result, the English longbows were now in range of the French troops and began to fire on them mercilessly. The French, who had been hoping to avoid a cavalry charge into the muddy field, they were now forced to take action under the heavy longbow fire. They advanced, therefore, but of course they were unable to charge the archers. The archers had stakes out in front of them and thick forests behind them, so the French could only charge forward, not into the archers, only into the men-at-arms, into the English infantry. And, just as with Cressy, they were butchered by the English longbowmen who tore them to bits as they charged. And here, once again, the heavy armour of the French knights became a liability as the English set upon them in hand-to-hand combat. These blokes were wearing 25 kilograms of armour trying to fight in a mud pit while being fired upon by from both sides by these you know highly trained archers. And as more and more French knights joined the melee, it became so packed and crushed that they couldn't even swing their swords. And, and, and knights who fell to the ground, they were trampled to death, or, or rather horribly, they actually drowned in their helmets, which filled with the mud as they were crushed into the dirt there. It was, I mean, it was absolutely horrific. It was an absolute bloodbath. 
Um, and eventually, the archers themselves joined the hand-to-hand fighting using everything from, you know, swords they picked up off the ground to the mallets they'd been using to hammer in their stakes. And the French, hemmed in on three sides, were utterly annihilated. After three hours of fighting, the English were victorious and ended up in the very odd position of having more prisoners than they themselves had soldiers. And Henry V, at this point, made a uh, a pretty brutal decision, really, and one that doesn't really reflect too well on him, uh, you know, as, as the years have passed. He executed almost all of them in cold blood. He was worried that his troops wouldn't be able to handle being outnumbered by prisoners, especially if the prisoners tried to rise up against their captors. You know, there were way more prisoners than there were soldiers to guard them. And uh, this was particularly brutal, you know, certainly by today's standards, but even by the standards of the, you know, it was at odds with the the, the chivalric rules of warfare at the time. But I tell you what, it got the job done. Over 6,000 French soldiers died, while the English death toll, perhaps at a maximum, was as high as 600. And it may have been way, way lower, uh, hardly over 100 of the lowest estimates there. So once again, The Longbow had done its work against heavily armoured cavalry, proving its worth as one of the mightiest weapons on the face of the earth. However, it wasn't to last. As the 15th century continued, the Longbow's effectiveness began to decline significantly with the rise of a new technology, of course, gunpowder. But I mean, even before gunpowder began to be developed... It still wasn't looking super hot for the longbow as the French, during the Hundred Years' War, adapted to the uh, the, the strategy uh, involved with uh, with fighting with a longbow. At the Battle of Verneuil in uh, in 1424, despite it being a you know a, a very decisive English victory, even at this point, the the effectiveness of the longbow was challenged very meaningfully by the French and their Scottish allies as they broke through the defensive lines, the stakes and what have you, and, and managed to break the lines of the, the archers, even their, in their defensive positions. And so, you know, again, despite the fact that the uh, the English beat, I mean, they got a little bit of a two for one there. They love fighting the, the French, they love fighting the Scottish, and they got to butcher countless thousands of both at the Battle of Vernil while they won the day. The, the, the longbows didn't have the effect that, I, that probably the English were hoping for there because they, their, their lines did break. And it got much worse uh, shortly after this in 1429 at the Battle of Patay when uh, the, the, the longbowmen were, were routed completely. Perhaps they learned from their mistakes in Agincourt because the, uh, the French cavalry was able to, to charge and, and mow down the, the English longbowmen before they even set up. Uh, their, you know, their, their spikes, their, their stakes, their, their defensive countermeasures. And as a result of that, the, uh, they, they broke, they were routed, and, and, and the, the French won the day. The, the French often describe that battle as their Agincourt pate because it was such a, such a crucial and enormous and important victory for the French. But more than anything else, you know, it wasn't necessarily uh, an adaptation of, of strategy or tactics or, you know, sort of maneuvers on the battlefield that obsoleted the, uh, the longbow. It was, as I say, it, it was the advent of, of new military technology and specifically gunpowder. And nowhere was this more obvious than at the Battle of Castellon, the, the decisive battle of the Hundred Years' War, the, the one that ultimately catapulted the French to, to a final victory because it was there that artillery, heavy artillery, cannons, for want of a better word, were, were used uh, in fighting off the English. And of course, they, they laid waste to the English forces, uh, the, the men-at-arms, the cavalry, the, the, the archers, everything, of course, was, was, was obliterated by this brand new technology, uh, th- these enormous guns that, uh, that the French were able to bring to bear. 
And uh, it was very much the development, the continued development of uh, of gunpowder technology that 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 was the death knell for the English longbow. Gunpowder weapons, of course, had been around for a while, you know, hundreds of years before the, the longbow was, was sort of at its apex. But it was, it was at this time in history that they began to see real widespread use across, uh, across battlefields. An arquebus, which was a, a, a type of early long gun, while it had a slower rate of fire than a longbow and wasn't as accurate as a longbow in the hands of a trained archer, it punched through armour even more effectively and much more importantly than anything else, it didn't require years of training to use effectively. Uh, you, you could pick up one of these guns and, and get a sense of how to use it. You know, obviously, you still need to be trained. You still need to practice with it. But it wasn't going to take you 10 years of shooting at targets on the village green every Sunday to, you know, become an experienced marksman with, uh, with a gun like this. And, uh, you know, that was more than anything else the reason uh, for, for, the, the, for the final decline, the ultimate decline of the longbow uh, as a weapon. But of course, the English, they clung to it. They clung to the longbow for a long time, well into the 16th century, continuing with this forced archery training and, and even banning other forms of marksmanship as sport to, you know, to, to, make, to make sure people still had and were still using bows. But they were swimming against the tide, of course, and the very, very last battle in which the English longbow was used as a principal weapon was in 1513 at the Battle of Flodden, where once again, the English shot the Scottish to pieces. It was one of the worst defeats in Scottish history, which is really saying something, because the Scottish have lost a lot of battles against the English over the years. So I think the Battle of Flodden was a, was a very fitting goodbye for a, a weapon that was so quintessentially English. It was stolen from the Welsh and used to kill the Scottish and the French. But as time passed, of course, longbows passed into obsolescence, giving way to more and more advanced firearms as gunpowder technology improved and improved. And today, longbows are, of course, used for sport and for recreation. And uh, they're not still made with the same ridiculous draw weight of these, you know, of the ones that we've been talking about, those from the Middle Ages there, because for target practice, you don't, you don't need seven or 800 newtons of force behind an arrow. But still, you can go online and, and today you can watch videos of people shooting arrows through car bonnets and the like with longbows, which will give you a, a real sense of the power of the weapon. It, it, it really is quite incredible. I do recommend you go and check that out. But the longbow, of course, it's, it's never and, and, and quite probably will never return to its, uh, its position of dominance as, as the peak of military technology. Although, I have to say, that's not due to a lack of trying because the last recorded wartime kill with a longbow actually took place in 1940 during the Second World War in the hands of the slightly mental fighting Jack Churchill, who fought the Nazis with a longbow and a broadsword. <laughs> but that, I'm afraid, is another story entirely. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the English longbow. I really did enjoy an episode, uh, you know, writing and, and recording an episode that wasn't necessarily about, uh, again, a, an event or a person, more about a thing. And if you're interested in hearing more of this sort of stuff, please let me know with suggestions as well. I, I do get a lot of suggestions, of course. There's a big long list of them that I, I like to, you know, work through and browse through, whatever else. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I don't get suggestions about... Uh, different historical artifacts or 
technological developments or, or you know, whatever. So if there's anything you want to hear about, uh, please let me know. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at things like, again, the stirrup, the wheelbarrow, uh, other really important pieces of technology, the, the printing press um, that, that have got us to, to where we are today as a civilization. So if you've got any ideas, please let me know. Send me, uh, send me an email. The best way to do that, of course, is jump on the website halfhousehistory.net and you can find the uh, the contact form there. Send me through an email and, uh, and, and I'll investigate whatever you send me, of course. Um, and it's on the website that you can find old, old, uh, old links to old episodes and, of course, links to subscribe to the show on iTunes or Android or Spotify. And uh, thank you to all the people leaving reviews on uh, on Android. On, on, on Android? You can't do that on Android, can you? No, on iTunes. Uh, it really helps me out. That's what all the YouTubers say. I don't really know how it does, but apparently it's something I'm supposed to say. So there you go. I said it. Um, plenty of orders coming in on uh, on the uh, on the merch thing, which is, is it bigcartel.com slash half history or is it? Just put all of those words into some configuration in Google. You'll find it. And, of course, if you want to give me money but want less things back for it, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash history and subscribe there. All the Patreon members, of course, get a range of different benefits. You can get early access to shows or you can uh, you can gain access to uncut episodes of, uh, of the show, the ones before I've actually edited them. In this one, uh, Megan, my girlfriend, jumped out of nowhere and scared the bejesus out of me and I said the F word and I didn't edit it out of the uncut episode. So if you want to hear that, well, it's going to cost you $5 a month, but hey, worth it, I would say. Anyway, um, that's it, I think. This is enough of the boring housekeeping uh, housekeeping stuff. We're done for another week. Thank you so much for listening and for hanging out. And um, yeah, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people that you're vaguely indifferent towards. Uh, love to keep uh, spreading, spreading the word of the show and... Uh, didn't have a dismount for that sentence. So we are going to close with a question posed on Reddit, of course. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Longbow, and this is a Longbow-related question posed by Reddit historian, or Reddit scientist, I should say, Reddit scientist Gorwak, who asks, In 1415, the draw weight of a typical English Longbow was 100 pounds. Adjusted for inflation, that's over 63,000 pounds today. Why are modern archers so much weaker? 